MSW Media. Hi, I'm Harry Littman, host of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. Each Monday, I'm joined by a slate of Fed's favorites and new voices to break down the headlines and give the insider's view of what's going on in Washington and beyond, plus sidebars explaining important legal concepts read by your favorite celebrities. Find Talking Feds wherever you get your podcasts. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. This is episode 102 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 4th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. With me, as always, real-life lawyer and real-life friend, Andrew Torres. Hi, Andrew. Hey. Hey, Allison. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, my friend. It's uh, going to be the year of accountability, I've decided. I, I like that. That's that's our uh, you know word for the year. Yeah, yeah. Investigations was 2022. Yeah, accountability. And, uh, that's. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah, accountability. And, you know, we have a, a great show about accountability <laughs> um, because there are now multiple investigations, criminal and civil, open against a an elected congressman from New York by the name of George Santos. I know everybody's heard his name. We've talked about it a little bit on the beans, but we haven't gotten into the legal weeds. We've just talked about his absolute bald face lies. <laughs> um, and uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the actual crimes that could be charged and what can't be charged as crimes and why it's a good thing those aren't crimes in our country. Uh, but first, I think we should open up with our new patrons. Yeah, and this list is going to go back a couple weeks since we you know, took off for the holidays. But um, everybody that uh, gave us as little as a buck over at uh, patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod that's a-i-s-l-e-4-5 p-o-d you get a shout out and yeah uh, absolutely you get a shout out and uh, by the way i want to thank everybody for uh, giving us a week off there that was really yeah. <laughs> meaningful uh, that and, was nice uh, i got to see my parents in florida and you know oh, nice. do a little bit of traveling and uh, yeah it was it was good uh, i got to watch the west wing marathon ooh. on hln and uh, learn about what the battery daddy is. We can go into that later if you want, but we don't have to do that. Uh, I'm just, I'm just not right. used to, I'm just not used to commercials. But it, yeah, apparently it's this caddy or that you can store your batteries in, and they felt the need to make it sound dirty by calling it the battery daddy. Uh, I'll never, never understand that. But uh, I digress. Let's talk about our new patrons. We have Ann Kaufman, 
placeholder for a clever Patreon name. Love it. That is a clever Patreon name, by the way. Jinx Greymoon, do not take advice about taking legal advice from a podcast from a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Ernest Lansdale, Gina Marie Opalescent, or Opalescent, if you will. Morgan Wollum, Kate Moran, John Skiffington, Elizabeth, Monica Meyer, Danny Parker, Heather Solonga, Diplomatic Iocane Immunity. It is odorless and tasteless. Judith Parsons, Luann Rasmussen, and Zach Lovett. I am also not left-handed. Thank you to <laughs> Ann Zacharitz, Ben Foe, Terrence Broadwell, Colin Reimer, Josh Andrews, Eddie, Esma, and Russo, our law dogs. Ooh, well, welcome aboard. Kathleen Hammett, Meg Alexander, Amanda... Yaraway? I hope I pronounced that correctly. Peter Gavin, Susan Ingram, Annie DeGroot, Meredith Blake J, Willow Ray, and King of Aces. Thank you oh, all I so like much it. for supporting the show. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, and more importantly, uh, c- couldn't do it without you. So uh, thank you. And uh, we're, we're committed to bringing you some great stuff in 2023, the year of accountability. Yes, true cleanup happening this year, I promise. Um, Now, uh, Andrew, let's talk about our friend George, because (laughs) I I tweeted uh, on New Year's Eve Eve, Mm -hmm. because a lot of folks, you know, wanted to throw him in jail for lying to the public. Uh, But my tweet says, no, you can't go to jail for lying to the public. You can go to jail for lying to donors to raise money on false pretenses. You can go to jail for lying to Congress or other investigators. And you can go to jail for taking illegal campaign contributions. I didn't really name any names, but I don't think I had to in this particular tweet. Yeah, and I don't and I don't think you need a lawyer co-host. I mean, that is an absolutely accurate summary. And 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 it's an accurate summary at every level of resolution, right? Like so one of the things that you learn, it's it's true in our criminal system. This is even true in our civil system, right? Like one of the very first things you learn in torts class as a lawyer is the difference between an enforceable promise under contract and an unenforceable promise. Right. And you read, can't remember the name of the case, uh, but you, you read a case involving a lawyer who promises uh, his uh, associate, Hey, um, I will always take care of you. Right. And then when it comes time for the lawyer to retire, he's a scumbag. He sells the firm. He does wrong by the associate and the associate sues and says, um, I've been working for you for a decade. You promised you would always take care of me. And he was like, oh, right. I lied. That's how that happened. And the <laughs> and the and, and, and the court said, uh, look, um, a, 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 a one sided promise into the ether without consideration, without more not enforceable. I promise I'll always take care of you. Even if somebody relies on that, even if somebody uh, engages in behavior over a long period of time, probably not a thing you can sue for. Now, I know our lawyers in the audience are going to sit there and they're going to come back with promissory estoppel and detrimental. (laughs) Yes, there are. Okay. This is, this is a broad premise. Okay. But that broad premise is we don't make you liable for lies in the ether. We don't make you liable for criminally liable for lying to people in the ether. But what we do do is punish certain kinds of lying. Right. And I, and I wanted to kick this off with just to clear it out yeah. uh, as a possibility first is defamation. 
because you can be civilly sued for defamation for a lie that you tell about somebody else. But I don't think you can be in trouble for defaming yourself. <laughs> you, I don't know who would have standing in that case. <laughs> that would be that unless would be you're fun. maybe a sovereign citizen yeah, and you're suing your yeah, your real straw person. man, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, you would never need to bring a civil lawsuit because your birth certificate's worth billions. So why why would oh, why would you yes. need any money there? Yeah, no, I yeah. it that that efforts to try and shoehorn what a lot of what George Santos did uh, into either state or federal uh, criminal offenses are, are, are not going to work. Okay. Um, and, and, and I, I want to make sure that I'm not making the same mistake and that, that we're not perpetuating the same false equivalence that you see coming out of like, you know, assholes on the right. Jonathan Turley wrote a piece over the weekend. And I, I know, I know I like, I should have for my, for my personal sanity and my blood pressure, like <laughs> my Google alerts should say not Jonathan Turley, not Alan Dershowitz. Right. But yeah, but it is, it is a real th thing that's happening on the right where they, they say much like the people who say both the parties are the same. They say, yeah. Oh, well, you know, the lies that Joe Biden told on the campaign trail are the same as the lies that George Santos told on the, on the campaign trail. And I think that we can, as the public and as humans with, uh, you know, an understanding of nuance, differentiate the two. We can't do it criminally, but we can certainly do it morally and objectively almost. Yeah. It, 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 and, and it is to to be clear. And, and the underlying Supreme Court case that I'm going to talk about involved a Democratic member of Congress. Right. Like th th this is something where I think we want to clearly draw a line in terms of the kind of conduct that might be censurable by the incoming Congress that that might eventually lead like, you know, look, I, I, I think political expediency is going to triumph over doing the right thing here. But as we will find out, there's nothing to stop the House Ethics Committee from recommending that Santos be expelled from the from the House. And yeah. and if that were to happen, the unlike the Senate, right, where, you know, New York Democratic governor, you could appoint an interim Democratic uh, a Democratic senator. If if a member is expelled from the House, you have to hold a special election. Right. And so there's a little bit of a backstop of Republicans could stand on principle and uh, you know, and still not kind of give up, right? And go campaign in the district and go, hey, look, we're really sorry. This guy screwed us as well as you. And you wanted to vote for a Republican. You wanted to vote for change. Here, vote for guy who's not, you know, a actively out there defrauding you. Okay. I'm not saying. Yeah, and imagine the microscope on that guy, by the way. <laughs> that's, in fairness, yeah, that 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 whoever the candidates are in that special election better be Jimmy Carter, right? Like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> made me give up my peanut farm. Yeah. Um, now, let, let me ask you a legal yeah, question, yeah. because this is sort of where I was getting a little bit stuck and not because I believe this to be true. But, you know, I always devil devil's sure, advocate sure. myself. Um, it is illegal to defraud donors to, for instance, the Save America PAC or Sidney Powell to defraud donors to her PAC by saying that 
the money is going to be or Steve Bannon, perfect example. The money is going to go to build the wall when he actually bought a car and paid to yacht tax or whatever. Um, that is Maris. <laughs> a crime. Yeah. And I'm not what I'd like to know is what makes that a crime, because obviously there's a thing of value changing hands. You're defrauding somebody. But why is a vote not a thing of value? Okay, I absolutely love everything that you've just asked. So let me try, as usual, with an Allison question to kind of unpack from the <laughs> the, the most precise to sort of the most philosophical. The first thing is there are this is an area where there are two overlapping authorities that, that come into play here. There are state election laws because the states by and large are in charge of running their own elections, even when that election is for a federal office. And in particular, New York's election law has uh, two, at least two statutes that seem really clearly to be implicated here. The first is 14-114. And that uh, is a prohibition on certain kinds of campaign contributions, receipt limitations. There's maximums. There's a really, really complicated formula for how much somebody can can donate. And then there are requirements for how you report and record those donations. Right. So lying about, you know, if if somebody, if an outside force gives seven hundred thousand dollars, let's say just to draw a number out of a hat and you say, oh, no, that's my money. I'm just giving myself seven hundred thousand dollars. You would run you would run afoul of both of those uh, sub provisions of 14114 because you're you're exceeding the cap. Uh, there, there's no cap on self-financing, but there is pretending that you're self-financing when it's really someone else financing, right? Um, and uh, that that second part is 14-120 campaign contributions to be under the true name of the contributor. <laughs> and so- Right, yeah, sure. Yeah, so that's a law that New York has uh, that we don't have in the federal system, right? We, we don't have that level of requirement. Um, but- we do have a number of uh, specific uh, campaign disclosure requirements uh, that are also in the federal code, right? Uh, 52 USC 10306 uh, at SEC. And so you have those two kind of uh, differing sovereigns. And, and if reporting is to be believed, both uh, federal and state investigations have been opened into kind of tracking the money and tracking the disclosures, which is yes, really... Yes, so we, yeah. we have Eastern District of New York and we have Nassau uh, DA, which is who is a Republican, by the way. Yeah. Nassau County DA. But, but my question is less about campaign finance violations mm. and more about just lying, saying you're Jewish. Uh, right. uh, because we know that lying to defraud donors is a crime what makes that a crime and what makes it not a crime to lie to defraud voters because isn't a vote also a thing of value that's kind of where like when i'm sitting it here in my head like trying to figure out how to defend against somebody cr criminally charging me with defrauding donors and a vote is a, do a donation that's kind of where i'm like how do you put that together yeah and i will say Although virtually everything counts as a thing of value for purpose of federal election laws, the one thing that does not is a vote. 
and 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 here's here's the way to think about this conceptual and this is sort of i i told you i was going to start from the most uh practical and then kind of zoom out to the most philosophical oh i see yeah yep. yeah, yeah because i i do want to talk more about that seven hundred thousand dollar donation and, yep. and and stuff but I, yeah i'm very curious about just just the you know more philosophical lying yeah. part here's the way to think about it um i can be a candidate and i can say I am running on a tax cut and I'm going to put up on my website a tax cut calculator and you go in and type in your income and it will spit out a number. And that's how much money you will make if you elect me to Congress. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Right. And and candidates, in fact, have run on those sorts of platforms all the time um, from, you know, the sort of. Uh, George W. Bush, let's give everybody 300 bucks in 2002, you know, to kind of progressive candidates that have run on, uh, you know, progressive tax reform, that sort of thing. Um, the difference between if you vote for me on average, each of you will save $1,400 and hey, I'd like to pay you $1,400 for you to vote for me is very, 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 very narrow, right? Like it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to divide that line up. But yet, right, the statutes that criminalize paying people to vote are explicit, right? There must be a quid pro quo. I must hand you a sack with a literal dollar sign on it. It must be in, you know, uh, non-sequentially numbered 20s. Uh, and then, you know, you must go in and vote a particular way in order to... It, it, it right, like really the people is. handing out gas vouchers while campaigning for Trump. Yep. Or uh, as a political, yeah, even then, right? as a political consultant friend of mine, when asked to when I uh, asked this person while uh, intoxicated to confess the worst election related uh, uh, crime that, that that they had ever committed, it was uh, on Native American reservations circulating voting cards with airline bottles of alcohol attached and i was like oh gosh like i was not prepared for this conversation but uh yeah look so there are uh, uh, the the hallmark here is that there are very few principles to be derived in election law right from which we say and it, it generally in the law you know you would say oh like here's the guiding principle there should be some proportionality between the punishment that we impose and the crime committed right that's and that's kind of what the eighth amendment means right in election law it, it is there isn't much in the way of sort of an overarching principle and the reason for that is you know quite frankly the long history of of belief in the first amendment and the belief in the first amendment in applying to core political speech in elections being core political speech and the idea that um again maybe not one that i think is uh you know ought to be accepted uncritically in an age of social media but the idea in the sort of the john stewart mill marketplace of ideas right the uh the surest way to be sure of the truth is by its collision with error right i, okay. I i'm not sure that that's true in two you know in 2022 and in, and in fact you know the 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 santos election i mean he won by eight points in a uh, a blue district um, it, 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 I think helps to illustrate that, in fact, 
uh, campaigns are terrible devices to try and get at the truth. Um, so, so you can lie your butt off to you get can. <laughs> a vote, but not a dollar. That's right. And and so, how do you distinguish that then from, let's say, uh, you know, fundraising for his campaign? You can't distinguish the dollars that were given for saying that he's Jewish, but you can distinguish the dollars that were given for, you know, saying you're going to use the money to build a wall and then you don't use it for that. I'm a little confused about that. Can you help me out with that? Sure. So keep in mind that the that the Steve Bannon problem is distinct from a campaign violation. Right. The, the, the issue with Steve Bannon and, and, and what he's being prosecuted for is running a fraudulent charity and diverting the funds. It, OK, it's, well, then let's talk about Trump's big lie, yep. because that's more philosophical and can be considered a campaign thing. Right. Like yep. the election was stolen. I need your money to help, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, I know there was a lot of investigation in the January 6th committee about that. And that might be public opinion investigation. And not criminal. Tell me a little bit about, is it criminally, is it illegal to defraud donors using the big lie if that's your campaign pitch? Yeah, and I don't think that it is, right? Here's here's where I would sort of draw the line. And uh, I, I, I did a huge investigation into this in uh, Thanksgiving of 2016 when uh, grifter and con woman Jill Stein raised twice as much money as she had during the entirety of her presidential run uh, by running, claiming that she was going to get recounts in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, and the recounts were going to make Hillary Clinton president. And it was all very, very obviously a scam. Uh, and I was very comfortable then and now that nobody was going to sue me from uh, Jill Stein headquarters for calling her uh, a fraud and a con artist and a scam. Uh, because when you look into it, the what they promised to do legally was uh, sort of two things. N number one, um, in many cases were nonsense. And then number two, that they had written disclaimers onto their own website that said, Oh, if for whatever reason we're unable to have standing in these cases, which that's the whole thing, right? Like you can't sue for a recount on behalf of somebody else, by and large. I mean, you know, again, state laws differ and they could in Wisconsin and they did. And in fact, they 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 lost. They they cost uh, Hillary Clinton. I think it was like five votes in Wisconsin after the end of the uh, the recount. Uh, but but they knew they weren't getting that in Michigan. Um, because Michigan law says that you have to be the person who's aggrieved. And Jill Stein was in, you know, seventh place beforehand and seventh place afterwards. And that's not an injury that the court can repair. And they knew that. And their little disclaimer said, oh, if for whatever reason we don't have standing, we're going to use it in our longstanding Green Party efforts to fight, you know, for campaign finance reform, which is basically a way of saying we're going to use this as our general fundraiser. Right. And so I, I thought then, I think now uh, that uh, if you gave money again, don't take legal advice from a podcast. Uh, but but I thought then and I think now that if you gave money uh, under false pretenses to the uh, Jill Stein reelection, uh, you know, that you would have a uh, a decent cause of action against uh, their campaign committee for fraud. Um, 
Go ahead. Okay. Now, what what if what if Steve Bannon were running for something when he defrauded yeah. all those wall people? Yeah, I, I think it would make it a harder case, right? Because be, because think about this sort of goes back to it kind the, of says that kind doesn't that kind of do the whole thing though, where if you 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 can shield yourself from criminal liability if by you're running, running for, for office. political office. Yeah, it it does. It's one of the things that's absolutely broken about our system. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it this goes back to the incorrect much maligned and deservedly so uh but there being sort of a, a a kernel of academic respectability god i don't even want to use that phrase about the alan dershowitz position right during the the first trump impeachment right the it, it, it is not that there is some merit to the idea that it remains uh a professional judgment for a candidate for office to say, oh, yeah, well, the best way for me to do X is for, you know, is for me to be elected and not my opponent. And so, therefore, if I've promised you a laundry list of stuff and I've used it to my own personal electoral advantage, it is very, very difficult to separate that out. Now, again, uh, obviously, that was insane when applied in the context of obstructing a law that was. That, that used mandatory language shall send funds to Ukraine. Um, but but nevertheless, like that underlying idea of there's this there's this weird uh, notion in politics of, yeah, no, you're you're doing your job protecting yourself when, you know, because if you sincerely believe that's the best way to deliver on that promise to voters. So take Steve Bannon, right? If he says, I'm going to use this to build the wall. And instead, he uses it for his campaign stuff to get himself elected. I think that would be very difficult to prove a fraud case because you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to get elected and then I'm going to build the wall when I'm elected. You know? Yeah. And 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 I mean, it gets super complicated. Uh, and, and I can see that's kind of where prosecutorial discretion comes in uh, when you're trying to decide whether or not to prosecute a case. Yeah. But in this particular case, in the Santos case, we do have a very clear prosecutable crime if true, um, with the uh, movement of $700,000 from his business to his paycheck to his... I, I, it seems like what he did, and and talk about how this doesn't circumvent the law. It seems like he had an LL, has an LLC, paid himself a salary of $700,000 out of it, and then donated from himself, from himself, his personal, eh, his $700,000 to his campaign in in what seems to be an effort to circumvent the law that says corporate money can't be used for that. Now, how do you how do you legally come in and say, I know it's, it's it, it reminds me sort of like people who try to get married so they don't have to testify against each other or they're hiding <laughs> assets by sending shit to Trump Organization 2.0 um, or bankruptcy, trying to avoid bankruptcy or or filing bankruptcy to have to try to avoid paying a billion and a half dollars to Sandy Hook victims. It seems like that is also illegal and could actually double up the crimes instead of trying to skirt them. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And what all of those hypothetical and not so hypotheticals that you just put forward have in common is an underlying notion. And I'm going to use these. Uh, I'm going to say this. This is small M, small L. Right. I do. I do not mean this as the 
federal offense of money laundering, but rather the colloquial sense of money laundering, right? That is, how do I engage in a series of transactions that are designed to hide the fact that this is going from A to B? So I route it through C, D, E, and F, and I make it hard for you to like find Like Sam Patton buying an inauguration ticket for $25,000. Exactly right. And and I, I, I want to say a bunch of things here, okay? Uh, the first is that following the money is a thing that prosecutors and federal agents are very, 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 very good at doing. Uh, but, uh, and and examples of that abound, right? Uh, but on, on the flip side, um, you know, we did uh, a, an entire episode on opening arguments. It was episode 614 on how Donald Trump broke the Federal Elections Commission and uh, Joe Biden has not yet fixed it. Now, again, a lot of stuff on his plate, that sort of thing. But this is the kind of thing where a couple of appointments, um, you know, really could have made a difference. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to rehash that episode. The the hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, if the minority reports are to be believed coming out of the FEC, that the uh, that the FEC has just sort of given a pass to the Trump campaign uh, is, I, I think, one of the truly underreported um, stories of political abuse of, of the Trump administration. And so, you know, it, it, I, and so I want to balance out that notion of you can follow the money. You, you, you can. And prosecutors and federal agents are very, very good at following the money. They're experts that do nothing but that. Uh, from the notion that that's been put into practice, particularly that that's been put into practice against Donald Trump, which it has not. Um, he's he's gotten away with a ton of stuff. So uh, yeah, so that's the, we sit in a, in a regime of kind of uneven enforcement, and I would not be want to begin to predict. Um, other other than I could I can say um, it it sure looks like uh, Democrats and Republicans alike are happy to throw George Santos under the bus. So you know if I were gambling, uh, I, you know it, it 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 doesn't look good for him right now. Um, so if I say in court, uh, Andrew, if I yeah. say if I'm Santos and I say no, that was a personal donation for me personally because I work for this company and they paid me. What do you then present evidence that the company does nothing? Uh, and that I do nothing for the money. And then like, how do you sort of prove that yep. I use that to circumvent the system? So, so two things. Number one, if you so testify in court or in pleadings, right, you've now opened yourself up to two more criminal charges, right? An 18 USC 1001, right? Um, and, and perjury, right? And, and again, even though both of those are rarely charged, the, the, there's a reason we say perjury is rarely charged. Uh, these are because financial crimes are precisely the situation in which perjury uh, does get charged because it's really, really easy. Did you, you know, steer this payment of $700,000? Absolutely not. Oh, well, <laughs> is this your signature on the check? Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah. So um, it, 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 it I, I just wanted, I wanted to add that first part because I know you know the distinction. In fact, I think you made it in the tweet, right? The, the difference between kind of lying into the ether versus lying to a, a congressional investigatory committee or in court or before Congress. Those or are a grand all, jury yeah, right, or a grand yeah. jury, all of that. Right. So number one, You've added some new crimes onto the list. And number two, um, that 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 again, that kind of inquiry is the kind of inquiry that courts do every single day. Right. When we when we need to decide if a 
corporation is a sham corporation, right? You you, you look at, right? Okay, you know, uh, Essential Consultants, LLC. Uh, how was it formed? Who formed it? Who were the members? Where are its bank accounts? Does it have separate stationery? Does it provide other services, right? Did anyone else deposit money in this? Are uh, there any other clients? Or yeah. there, where did it come from? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that there's a whole... It's not just as simple as, well, it's obvious. There's a whole body <laughs> right. of evidence um, that, that needs to be put forth to prove that it's not a legitimate corporation. You didn't legitimately earn $700,000 and you did it just to get around this law. Right. But but I will point out that it is, uh, you know, the dumbest segment of, of our would-be criminals, George Santos, Alex Jones, that think they've found a new thing with when, when they're like oh i'll just i'll start an llc and i'll run the payments through that and who will own the llc me and an llc owned by my parents no one will ever figure this out and all of a sudden they're like oh wait like i'm not the first person to think of this like no shit you know so yeah and then you get to the actual super crafty people who run an llc that seems legit and they do legit business and it's a cover and it's a front for this kind of a thing right yeah. so then it then it becomes a little more difficult to to bear out the and that's kind of where we get into the a little bit less stupid Joel Greenberg, um, you know, no show jobs and, and pay pay contracts for nothing, um, because then it may then they try to at least make it seem like they're doing something for it. But it still comes out in the wash is pretty obvious. Yeah. And 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 so, again, I, I don't want to I, I, I love that you mentioned the, the Greenberg case. Right. I mean, you know, he, he got 11 years. Um, it, it, I do not want to say that this is a, an area that is applied evenly um but i i i because it's not right and and sort of the more crafty <laughs> the more corrupt the better you hide it uh the more politically connected the more if you're donald trump uh the more historically you've you've gotten away with it and that sucks and that's not to suggest there's not a lot of work that we couldn't do to improve campaign finance and and electoral accountability laws in general um but but it would be incorrect to say you know that people always get away because that's not true yeah, it's also a resources problem. Yeah. I talked to Andy McCabe at length about this when I had a first interview with him at the Mueller She Wrote yeah. uh, podcast. And, and he's like, look, after 9-11, we had pretty much zero dollars for white collar crime investigation. Um, it all went to counterterrorism and counterintelligence and yeah. and everything like that. And, and you know, as it, at, at the time, as it should have. Uh, but we still were so behind in, in the funding and in the infrastructure. You know, we, you and I have been talking about doubling the federal bench forever uh, at the back end there. Yep. Um, one final question for you, because somebody put out a campaign expenditures list from uh, from Santos. And, I, you know, kind of like how I noticed and, and we sort of picked up on the fact that in the Trump NFT trading cards, there was a limit of 100 per customer at ninety nine dollars. So every transaction came in under ten thousand dollars, <laughs> which puts it under the the Secure Banking Act uh, red flag, you know, FinCEN. Hey, there might be a problem here. But this laundry list of campaign expenditures by George Santos or everything is is one hundred and ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents, like hotel stays, uh, rental cars. Um, things that cost way more than $199 <laughs> are all capped at $199.99. Is there something in the law that says we don't generally flag things over $200 or is this just some weird coincidence? So 
There is nothing. I saw that there is nothing that I can find in the either the federal or the New York state election laws um, that that exempts contributions under two hundred dollars. Um, but uh, there are sort of numerous. Right. Like when you are, you know, reporting expenditures pursuant to 52 U.S.C. 30116. A seven C for right, like you, you, you have to list, but you, uh, in in many cases, right, you are supposed to list every coordinated expense with uh, a uh, with a pack or with an outside party, um, and I, I guess the question is, did. Did they receive advice? Did they receive advice, which I think it's clear that they did, that says like, oh, yeah, but look, like nobody ever looks at those lines if it's under 200 bucks. And and then the second question would be, was that good advice? And, and that, it may not be right. Like, you know, it, 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 the the people advising the Santos campaign on how to crime, if 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 that in fact happened, I'm, I'm not suggesting that it did, but it, it, if it did. These were not, you know, they were not sending our best and brightest over there. So, well, yeah. yeah. And we had that guy, Kawaja, yeah. who was taking tons of money and donating it like 99 cents at a time or something like I, that. Thousands and thousands of transactions. I, um, I Dinesh D'Souza managed <laughs> managed to go to prison on a statute that it's almost impossible to go to prison over. Right. Like, I mean, you, he's special. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um <laughs> In addition to the crime stuff, right, I, I, I also wanted to clarify the question regarding whether Santos will be seated in the Congress. So short answer, yes. Uh, and then whether he can be unseated. And, and the answer to that is yes, too. And it comes from the exact same Supreme Court case. So I think. There's sort of a lot of misinformation going around on both sides on this, you know, the, the occupied Democrats level stuff, uh, but also, you know, Republicans. It, the, that case comes from a 1968 Supreme Court decision um, that's called uh, excuse me, 1969 Supreme Court decision called Powell versus McCormick, 395 U.S. 486. And it involved the incumbent and very powerful Democratic congressman, Adam Clayton Powell, who was uh, coincidentally from New York and uh, in the prior session. Right. So in 1966, there was an investigation into his behavior. And I mean, I'm sure he's long dead, but um I'm going to read directly from the Supreme Court opinion. It says during the 89th Congress, that was 1966, a special subcommittee on contracts of the Committee on House Administration conducted an investigation into the expenditures of the Committee on Education and Labor, of which petitioner Adam Clayton Powell was chairman. Right. So he was chair of the uh, Committee on Education and Labor. That subcommittee issued a report concluding that Powell and certain staff employees had deceived House authorities as to travel expenses. The report also indicated that there was strong evidence that certain illegal salary payments had been made to Powell's wife at his direction. Okay, so that's what that committee found in 1966. Um, Powell was reelected anyway. Uh, so, you know, again, good job, New York. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then here's what happened. Um, 
when the Congress met to organize in January 1967, Powell was asked to step aside while the oath was administered to the other members elect. Following the administration of the oath to the other members elect, uh, the House discussed the procedure to be followed in determining whether Powell was eligible to take his seat. After some debate by a vote of 363 to 65, so bipartisan, the House adopted House Resolution Number One. Uh, boy, that's that's real bad when that's <laughs> which provided that the Speaker appoint a select committee to determine Powell's eligibility. Although the resolution prohibited Powell from taking a seat until the House acted on the select committee's report, it did provide that he should receive all the pay and allowances due a member during the period. Because you know, of course, it did. So, um, so that's what happened, right? Investigation in 1966. Congressman is reelected. He's Shows up on January 3rd is like, I'm ready to hold my hand up. And they're like, not, not so fast, Adam. Uh, yeah. They they pass a resolution. That resolution says we're going to investigate. We're not going to let you take your seat until we're done the investigation. Um, and then uh, Powell sued uh, on that basis uh, okay. and, and said, you lack the power to prevent me from taking my seat. Right. And the, and the way in which Congress thought they were getting around that was that last part, right? That I made a joke about it, but the yeah, we, look, we're we're giving you all the pay and the benefits of having taken your seat, but we want to figure this out. Like we want to figure out whether you should be seated or not. And um, Powell cooperated with the first with the first uh, uh, request by the committee to testify. He did. The committee had, uh, you know, further, uh, hearings. They determined that, uh, he had asserted an unwarranted privilege and immunity from, uh, the New York courts that, uh, he wrongfully diverted house funds for the use of others and himself, and that he had made false reports on expenditures of foreign currency. Uh, they recommend that he be seated, but that he be censured, fined $40,000, which, you know, that was like a billion dollars back in 1968, uh, and deprived of his seniority. So stripped of his uh, committee and, and, and uh, uh, all of his other responsibilities. Um, and well, none of that's going to happen here. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So uh, so Powell went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said um, all of those recommendations and all of those requirements and everything else was was null and void uh, because it was conditioned on not being able to seat Powell. And the House has absolute authority over its members. It can establish whatever rules it wants. It can kick him out if they want to. Uh, but they can't. Two thirds vote. Right. Right. But yeah. they can't prevent you from taking your seat. That's a ah. constitutional requirement once you've been duly elected. And so that's what the Powell versus McCormick case stands for. And, and it's and, and, it, and it kind of puts um, it puts to bed sort of, I think, the stories on both the far left and the far right. Right. So uh, Powell is going to be seated. There's there's no chance of that. Or, uh, Santos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Powell was just also like, seated. Just like Powell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then once he is seated, uh, there have already been uh, the other Republican uh, congressmen from uh, from the Long Island area have already talked about making an ethics referral out that the vote in the House is incredibly narrow. Right. So I think it is highly likely that the House will refer to some will, will do kind of exactly what uh, the the House subcommittee did in 1967. That is 
Uh, they will arrange a select subcommittee uh, of the ethics committee and refer uh, Santos's case over there and they will make recommendations. And, you know, where what are those recommendations going to come to? Well, this is this is part of why I, I read you that case, even in an open and shut case where they discovered that this was a sitting member of Congress using congressional funds as kickbacks to himself and his wife and his friends. They were like, well, yeah, you know, we're not going to kick you out of our club for that. Right. Oh, no. Especially if we so, only have a five vote, yeah. uh, you know, uh, advantage yeah. in the House. I don't see it happening. But Is they could there, censure, um, right? whoopty shit yeah uh, no offense but um like None how <laughs> you know they attacked the fucking capital on january 6th censure is like so I, well so 1970s and, and, um, and then uh, i'm sorry you you finish yeah no um I, I was wondering uh if there's a recall mechanism in in new york i don't think there is is there no because like arizona says you can recall any elected official yeah. Through a recall vote. Um, so and the, and I think the states, because they can run their own elections, um, would would win that SCOTUS battle. Well, I don't know if now, but uh, regardless, I don't think there's a recall provision in New York for for every elected official. Yeah, that 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 that's my understanding as well. The other thing, too, is if he gets indicted criminally, that doesn't stop him from being seated or serving in Congress. Uh, either. Uh, we cannot say that enough. That's right. You can. <laughs> You can run for president. You can serve in Congress while under indictment or in jail, right? And yeah. Unless you unless you insurrected, and then you might be able to bring th Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment in, which would still be very difficult, but it's there. Yep. And and thankfully, you you reminded me of the the point that I did want to make, which was uh, uh, apparently right. Like a lot of scrutiny has now come down on uh santos's a democratic opponent and i think rightfully so uh and and the opponent says look um th there was there was literally too much to run to ground yes we had some uh campaign intel there was a, a d triple c report 87 pages uh on this guy that suggested all kinds of stuff we pointed out he was at the one six insurrection that he spoke out in favor of those insurrectionists that he's a uh deranged trumper maniac he'd run in santos ran in 2020 in the same district uh and got killed there is kind of a hard political lesson here that you know, everybody listening to this show to say, oh, yeah, you it is way worse to have participated in the one six insurrection uh, and to speak glowingly of those folks and to speak glowingly and endorse the racist Trump legacy in political terms. It, it, it still seems that the smartest strategic course is to try and disqualify your opponent in kind of classic terms. And I look there, you know, to the, uh, the, the Warnock uh, Herschel Walker race, right. Um, that, that was mostly not fought over Herschel Walker being a Trump puppet who was going to go in and, you know, become, who was part. also a liar. No, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. more, that, yeah, it was it was focused on his absolute incompetence and right. his campaign lies and that sort of thing. And, you know, and that's sort of the lesson here is, you know, that the that that the, uh, the congressional campaign focusing on the what should be disqualifying Trump issues, you know, 
seems like seems like the lesson for the next time around is, you know, if you're doing the PEMDAS, right, you're doing your order of operations, disqualify your opponent first and then hit him on political extremism second. I wish I didn't have to say that. Like to me, those are those ought to be equivalent to me. If you speak glowingly of, you know, right, the, that should the be disqualifying mob, in and of itself. Yeah. And in a lot of cases in, in the midterms, it was. it was a lot of people didn't want it. You know, there, a lot of people voted against election denialism and Trumpism. Yep. yep. Um, but this is and, a case where they did where it was raised, where it was on the right. ballot. And but also, I tend to not blame the Democratic <sighs> opponent for the lies of the Republican. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, you have to spend your money where you, you know, where you need it. Um, so, you, you, you know. You do, but this is part of a story. If you are thinking about this strategically, and, you know, we have folks who listen to our shows who run for office, right? No, and yeah. It, it's the a hard problem lesson. is, is if you don't get it done first and they get elected, you can't unelect them. So yep. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the lesson learned. And, you know, again, shoe on the other foot. Um, that's that's the way we would want it, uh, although we don't have giant massive liars, uh, you know, not to the extent. Well, that, and when uh, we do, so. we turn on them. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely do. So. Uh, and we remove them because they're unfit yeah. and we have another election. That's that's how we run things. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, talk a little bit about January 6th and, and all of the trove of evidence that's coming out, because I have some questions for you about some things Ooh. that Chuck Rosenberg has said. Um, so we'll do that right after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm Greg Oliar. Four years ago, I stopped writing novels to report on the crimes of Donald Trump and his associates. In 2018, I wrote a best-selling book about it, Dirty Rubles. In 2019, I launched Prevail, a bi-weekly column about Trump and Putin, spies and mobsters, and so many traitors! Trump may be gone, but the damage he wrought will take years to fully understand. Join me and a revolving crew of contributors and guests as we try to make sense of it all. This is Prevail. Everybody, welcome back to episode 102 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'm Allison Gill. Andrew Torres is with me. Andrew, uh, so like 200,000 pages of stuff has come out <laughs> between Christmas and New Year's uh, from the January 6th committee. And everybody is is trudging through it because it wasn't really released in any sort of uh, coordinated way. Um, but there are... Some things missing. There's some redactions. I, I, it seems like perhaps Jack Smith or the Department of Justice was like, please don't release these certain things. And I want to ask you about that and the jeopardy that releasing evidence in, from a congressional um, investigation to the public, it's how that can jeopardize criminal uh, probes, because I know Chuck Rosenberg's been on this on MSNBC for quite a while talking about, like, please don't release the stuff to the public. Please just give it to the Department of Justice. Please, please, pretty please. Uh, but they have, they've released it, uh, but there are still some redactions. And I looked at the context, and these don't seem to be redactions for, you know, um, privacy concerns or, you know, they, they seem to be redactions because there might be evidence of crimes behind the redaction bars. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Can you explain again, um, in, in the clearest terms, how, <laughs> how evidence, how releasing evidence can jeopardize ongoing criminal investigations. We haven't heard anything from the DOJ about whether they're pleased or displeased or otherwise with the release of all this information, but I'm wondering your thoughts. So hugely wide open question. As you mentioned, whenever you were talking about evidence that has been gathered, you um, 
perform kind of a a first level review of uh, was this speci- you know was, was this grand jury testimony for example that was provided to congress under an exception and and therefore you know retains its confidentiality and should not be disclosed and you know does this uh, relate to an open investigation of you know that particular identifiable individual that 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 sort of thing but the larger question, in my view, um, has has always been um, how this interacts with uh, a an investigatory, a, a potential prosecution and your Brady versus Maryland obligations to disclose uh, exculpatory information to the other side. Right. And and, and here's what I mean by that. M- many of the although although many of these are not depositions in the classical sense, right? They are voluntary interviews uh, that have been conducted pursuant to an agreement, although some were uh, folks who appeared under subpoena, right? That they basically have been conducted as if they were depositions, right? And the primary purpose of a deposition is to lock in a witness's testimony, right? There, yeah, you also, you want to find out what they know, and they've done a fantastic job, as I've been reading through all of these statements. I've been through probably about 100. Um, this was, you know, my Christmas present as well, so uh, I, got a, I got a whole bunch of new documents to read. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it You see, if you pay attention to the date stamp, not the, the date in which they were released to the public, but the date stamp of... The, the date in which the uh, witness interview was conducted, you, you see the committee building upon its institutional knowledge, right? And its interviews in August and September of 2022 are done with much more knowledge of the scheme, right? And the questions are more pointed than the 2021 interviews, which are just kind of like, so what's going on here? And who else did you talk about? What, have you ever heard of this guy? And, you know, and there's, there's a lot of that sort of um, kind of digging around. Uh, but, but so there is an exploratory purpose that the, the interviews were really well, well positioned for that. But there's also, you, lo- you lock somebody into their testimony. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, I've talked about on opening arguments is now that I've had a chance to see the full testimony of guy of, of, uh, from guys like Pat Cipollone and Mark short, um, they're going to be terrible witnesses that they, they are. They are not going to be called as witnesses in a trial against Donald Trump. On the other hand, uh, uh you might. You, 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 I understand you. You would have a tingling feeling from the belt down. Uh, but but um, I I, I think they're going to call Bill Barr. Right. He's not locked into giving any potentially exculpatory testimony. Um. So uh, I I think there there's that category. Right. In general, if you're thinking about making a prosecutorial decision, you would like as little as possible of the the witnesses and what they've said to be made public and to be available to people that you have not yet brought formal charges against. Uh, because I promise you, however incompetent folks like Evan the Cork and Christina Bob are, like Ch- Charles, Charles Burnham, like it, it is a competent white collar criminal defense lawyer, right? Like there are lawyers in Trump's orbit that know how to defend these kinds of cases. And they are 
hard they're they're working at least as hard as I am in digesting this information and kind of probing for weak spots and and that th- there are some that are out there so um I, I I'm a firm believer I want to see everything right I'm a journalist and so you know I think that all of this is about uh the judgment of history in addition to uh, the, the, the charging a crime, but uh, but yeah, I understand, but I, and I think that I think that re- like re- releasing a lot of this information, which is a lot of it, it was already publicly known. There hasn't been too much that's blown me away. Um, oh, of course, people are still sifting through it. Uh, a lot of this came out during the hearings. I think something that's very important that I didn't want to see happen that didn't happen is the immunization of witnesses. Uh, by the one six committee that could that could thereby interfere uh, with uh, criminal prosecutions, because I keep thinking back to Ollie North uh, and and that whole uh, situation and Iran Contra. Um, another interesting thing, uh, Andrew, that I want to ask you about: we've got two letters on Earth now from December thirtieth from the January sixth committee. One going to the Department of Homeland Security, and one going to a guy named Dick Sauber who is uh, this, a special counsel to, to President Biden. He was brought in last May to help defend Biden against a possible Republican House of Representatives next year, uh-huh. like impeachments and investigations and, and things like that. And these letters say, hey, we thank you for the testimony of redacted, redacted, redacted. We want to keep these people's names private. We are sending you the file. Uh, of their information, please file with the archives, take any additional steps you need to make sure that their names don't get out to the public. Uh, so they aren't releasing everything, it seems. Yeah, I that, I think that that reading is exactly correct. Yeah. And so I, the thing that I'm curious about, though, is who these people <laughs> were, because they're in the uh, Biden administration. <laughs> now, with DHS, I'm assuming it could be folks like in the Secret Service who are left over from the Trump administration, uh, that I can see uh, because they're current government employees. But Rich Sauber, Richard Sauber, like who in his office testified to the January 6th committee? What lawyers does he have working for him, working for Biden, that have knowledge of stuff that happened uh, in the events leading up to January 6th. That that sort of blows my mind. And again, uh, I think it's evidence that they aren't releasing all the evidence, which I think is is a good thing. I I I, I agree with that entirely. I, I guess I would sort of say this, that like, in my mind, what I have learned in addition to evaluating kind of the character of witnesses, right, of all of the folks that, you know, where we saw a selective presentation. Right. And and again, uh, Pat Cipollone was was the biggest kind of uh, red flag for me, because, you know, if you take apart some of the things that he said that he has said um, that I, I was encouraged by his. Uh, cooperation with the one six committee. When you look at the entirety, his 210 page transcript um, that there there's just, there's so many weasel words. There's so much that he could walk back uh, that just makes me really, really nervous. So, so I've learned that set that aside. The other big thing that I've learned from the information, from the documents that have been referenced uh, and, you know, we just got today, uh, more of the underlying emails that that were circulated that are referenced in the committee's you know 845 page report um and 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 you're right that we're not learning 
new details in broad strokes, right? Right. We're we're learning new details. We're not learning new concepts. Yes, I think, that's is... a, that perfect. I could that, that like that's... the uh, for example the the Rana McDaniel um, link because I... and you were going right there. Was I just stole your punchline, didn't I? Because no, that, I love to it. me. That to me was we knew Rana that that Trump called and handed the phone off to Eastman and had a discussion with Rana McDaniel Romney, right? Yep. What we didn't know is that she got all those electors back together, gave a list to Donald Trump himself, called Donald Trump on several occasions to give him updates on on gathering the fraudulent electors, and and that to me is this is the direct link we've been looking for with regard to him being in charge of the fraudulent elector scheme. And, and directing it right, yep. uh, and so those kinds of bits of evidence, where as before it was a broad concept, now it's there's evidence of criminal culpability there, or mens rea, or whatever the fuck uh, Latin term you want to <laughs> smack on it <laughs> for me, Andrew. <laughs> that's my yeah, that's my uh, local uh, lawyer colloquialisms for yep. the day. Uh, to me, it's that was my big standout moment. That is the direct link uh, because. You know, I remember when you and I were talking about the Eastman emails and the judge said, hey, this Eastman and Trump uh, were together in this scheme. And we were like, yeah, but where's that direct link? But then we also have to remember criminally, there doesn't have to be a direct link to be part of the conspiracy, right? Yeah, that that's I, I agree with that 100 percent. I was going to talk about something that was adjacent to that, but I think, again, directly supporting your point. And that is the existence of new Ken Cheesebro emails, yeah. right, that that uh, analyze the seven states, talk about getting alternate slates of electors. And be because these people never thought that uh, anybody would pierce through, you know, attorney client communications, uh, you know, say things like, well, it's going to be an uphill battle in Pennsylvania and it's a long shot in Arizona and Wisconsin or, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm making up the states, but but shows their state of mind as they go through, not just evaluating at the top line. Oh, what do you what do you mean by, uh, you know, it's it's going to be an uphill climb? Oh, it's, it's going to be an uphill climb because these folks must meet in the Capitol. These these states have a requirement that the secretary of state sign off on it. And and so then when they present those Denny's parking lot electors certificates and they know they didn't meet in the Capitol, they know it doesn't bear the seal of the secretary of state. They know yeah, it wasn't and approved Pennsylvania putting yep. on the thing, putting on their thing, that caveat that this is only in the case of uh, uh, something happening in, in the courts. And they're right. like, damn it, that's not what we wanted you to say. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And again, those are all. I, I, I love the way you put it, right? These are not new theories of the case, but they are new supporting details that 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 flesh out, that give us comfort that, um, boy, that the one six committee did did a thorough job in kind of teeing that up. But but, you know, for example, an area that we still have no idea about. Th this is not one. This is uh, has never come up in the one six committee. And it is something that I hope jack smith is investigating and that is the one three to one five war room at the willard and the coordination from donald trump to the proud boys on the ground which you and i suspect is in the possession of roger stone now we know look or bannon yeah. yeah we know roger stone's not gonna flip 
right? That that we've been there. He's already done time, right? Like he's he'll do time again. Okay, um, it, it that only helps his brand. Uh, but uh, are there folks connected who can be squeezed? Is there information that we can get out that can show uh, that that connection? Um, that I, we don't know. Right. But that's that's why you have a special counsel who is known for going after election crimes uh, and 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 political crimes. And, um, you know, and 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 we're, it's yet to be seen. So I guess I would put it. Let's kind of bring that question, you know, sort of back full circle. Um, it certainly appears that most of the one six committee stuff is being produced. And I am very happy with that as a journalist uh, and as somebody who believes that their mission was and 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 was successfully conducted largely in the public. Um, but there are things, there are areas that the one six committee didn't investigate. Uh, whether for time or because, uh, as you described, they didn't want to go down the approach of immunizing folks. Right. Who knows? Um, but that they didn't go there. And those are areas that are teed up, that are identified in their report and in the criminal referral section to the Department of Justice of, hey, look, um, there might be obstruction crimes. Here. You have the resources <laughs> yeah. to go after this. Do Take it. a look. So yeah, and, and also one of the big one of the big uh concerns about releasing all the evidence is that it gives the defense a chance to prep um prep a defense right now two two thoughts on that for me andrew first of all uh, all of the bad guys and recalcitrant witnesses lawyers were paid for by the save america pack they were already save, sharing all the information about yeah. that, the, that the committee had and knew they were already sharing all that information and there's nothing wrong with a a, a joint defense agreement um, it's, it, you know, well, it gets down to whether or not you're, you know, paying uh, bills to to suborn por- uh, suborn perjury, suborn perjury. That's nice. a new that's a new one. Uh, and second of all, giving them time to prep a defense. What defense? There's really no good. There's really no good defense here. So I'm, I'm you know, obviously you don't want to give anybody an upper hand anywhere. But uh, in some of these like seriously open and shut cases, it's like, uh, you, you know, I, th- I think of Donald Trump at his 11th Circuit uh, special master. You know, they had all the time in the world to, to prep these defenses and they couldn't come up with shit. So a uh, little not too worried about that either. Yeah. And and let me add, as as we talk about the 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 far end of the quote joint defense agreement that uh we talked about this on yesterday's oa uh that that there is a world of difference between a legitimate joint defense agreement and what stefan passantino appears to have done to poor cassidy hutchinson right like that 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 crosses every conceivable line uh and you know it it um, whether that will result in a criminal prosecution of passantino uh, you know, Liz Dye and I disagree on that one. Uh, I I took the pro side because I'm an optimist and she took the con side because she's smarter than me. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, like so I, I guess I would say this to the to the prosecutors who are listening to the sort of pro let's not tip our hand side that there's there's a lot that is still out there that is non-public and. You know, I think it's a good I think it's a good division right now. And uh, yeah, and we have to remember too the number one of the number one schemes that the Department of Justice has been investigating for months and months now is the fraudulent elector scheme going all the way back. And the Department of Justice uh, scheme and as it relates to the fraudulent elector scheme going back to the beginning of the year, 
And I have to imagine, and we know that the committee had started handing over, the, the DOJ prioritized them handing over documents and testimony and transcripts that, that involved the fraudulent elector scheme like way before the election even happened. So, you know, there may have been some communications there. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but uh, this is something that's been going on at the... It's not like the Department of Justice just said, oh, look, whoa, there was a fraudulent elector scheme. They've, <laughs> they've been on this for, for quite a while. They already have uh, probably uh, all, if not more, of the evidence than uh, the January 6th committee is handing over. They just, you know, they just need those transcripts in a lot of these cases to make sure that there's consistency. Yeah. And and I, I'm going to end with, uh, since I, I just started digging into the documents, uh, I, I tried to key on a couple of sources that I knew had things that I wanted to track down. Um, and, and one of them are, and they're not numbered in any helpful way, No, <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, I started looking at the Chapman university productions, right? Because, uh, that, that's what kicked off, uh, the entire, uh, crime fraud ruling, uh, from, uh, from the California court. And, uh, so one of the things that we have here is we have all of the lawyers, um, uh, including outside lawyers like uh, William Olson, uh, but also Ken Cheesebro and uh, and John Eastman weighing in on, hey, uh, should we bring an action, right, a declaratory judgment action that Mike Pence has the right to open and count and reject and do whatever the hell he wants with the uh, with the electors, and. What we have learned is that was openly debated and that the team of lawyers advising Donald Trump said was, oh, no, we definitely do not want to bring this kind of lawsuit because we will lose. And then we can't pretend like it's a valid theory on January yeah. 6th. They and did so, that with the Gomert lawsuit yep, as well. That's exactly right. But. So, or, I mean, they were, you know, they were opposed to the Gomer lawsuit because they were like, no, 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 yeah. don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness later. Exactly right. But what we didn't have was, for, for example, this is an embedded email from Olson to the group uh, to which Eastman then replies. So here's what Olson says. There are seven questions. Kurt uh, Olson or William Olson? This is William Olson. But Kurt okay. Olson is, is also on the list. Kurt Olson is not on this list, but um, Eastman, Larry Joseph, Mark Martin, Don Brown, um, Patrick McSweeney. So, Doc Brown? Yeah. <laughs> the actor? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Excellent. Um, he says, here are the questions that I would raise before filing a lawsuit like this. One, what is the likelihood of a favorable decision by the U.S. District Court of, of the District of Columbia? I would say 10% max, right? And that gives a little bit of analysis. Two, what's the likelihood of a favorable decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C.? I would say 10%. Then there's a little bit of, you know, breakdown of the politicals of the judges. Three, love this one. What is the likelihood of a favorable decision by SCOTUS by January 6th? Answer, I would say 0%. Interesting. Four, what would Pence do without a declaratory judgment? Unknown. Five, what would Pence do with a favorable or unfavorable declaratory judgment? Unknown. Six, what do our House and Senate leaders handling the Electoral College challenges think about this suit? Unknown. Seven, what does POTUS think he could be at risk here? Unknown. So, yeah, so that's a that's a really... Uh, special document that we didn't see before. And Eastman's reply is, I agree with this, except I put the odds at winning in either DDC, right, District Court of the District of Columbia, or the Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia, closer to zero, and the risk of getting a court ruling that Pence has no authority to reject the Biden certified ballots, very high. 
and danger that SCOTUS will decline to take as well. Best we could hope for, then, is a dismissal as non-justiciable. Let's hold and think this through. That is John Eastman, December 22nd, 6.15 p.m. Fuck. You know, two weeks before... circulating his war gaming of no of of course pence can do whatever the hell he wants and 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 so the significance of all and of that, all yeah also showing that you know that this is illegal i i love it that that's what i was going to say right that's the significance of this document and the many many others that are like this that are coming are there up. any other reasons that the court would t- toss it out or refuse to hear it uh, <laughs> <laughs> when the person the, the 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 argument that the January 6th committee teed up time and time again, I think really effectively, you and I talked about this. They did this amazingly well in the uh, executive summary portion of their report with the two columns in Microsoft Word. And the yes. left-hand column is, here's what people next to Donald Trump were saying. And then here's Donald Trump saying the exact opposite two days later, right? And, and, and the inference is over and over again, either Trump knew he was lying or... Or he was willfully blind and just didn't care. And and here, knowing that the team of advisors that worked on this scheme knew that it was full of shit from the very, very beginning, put down in writing. Uh, it, this is not just, you know, because previously we had Eastman going. We had Greg Short testifying that he told Eastman you're never going to get this through the Supreme Court. And Eastman initially said, well, maybe Thomas would vote for it. Maybe it would be eight to one against us. But as uh, as 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 uh, Jacob continued, by the end of that conversation, I had him convinced that it was nine nothing against right that not even Clarence Thomas would would vote for this. These shenanigans. Um, but here we have Eastman himself. Here we have saying, Eastman saying, yeah, none, none, none. none. The risk is zero. I think the likelihood that we get an adverse ruling is very high. The best we could hope for is that they say we're not going to look at this lawsuit. That's really damning stuff. And there's lots, lots more to come. So I I love 2023, the year of accountability. 100%. Thank you so much. I know we went a little bit over time. We had a lot to talk about. So I appreciate you hanging in there with us. Uh, We will be uh, back this weekend with a super secret patreon bonus episode i think those come out friday if you are a two dollar per regular public show patron you will get those for free and uh andrew we need to start talking about uh, a little bit later this month having a, another um zoom call I absolutely our, love those they are so much fun with our patrons we've got so many new patrons uh, to invite onto that call i'm looking forward to that ama q a you know happy hour cocktail mocktail bonanza Thank you so much. Everybody, Happy New Year. I've been Allison Gill. I'm Andrew Torres. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media. Season four of How We Win is here. 
For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, eating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How how We win. Win.